You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospin. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon, here as always with Christoph Jospin and Paul Gamble, producing over there, checking those levels. We are here in the Nori office and we are very pleased to have Ramez Nam with us today. He's one of our advisors also a sci-fi author. One of his books made a big impact on Paul early in his intellectual evolution. Would you say that's fair to say? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then I have been reading, started his sci-fi trilogy called Nexus. We should talk about that too. A lot of interesting ideas. I think also the way that you approach tech is very similar to how we think about blockchain too. We'll get into lots of interesting, weird little rabbit holes today. But why don't you uh, take it over there, Chris, up and move us ahead. Sure. And if you're just listening for the first time, welcome. Please subscribe. We like to think that we have interesting things to say. We try to do the dance around climate change, blockchain. How do you actually reverse climate change with blockchain? What are some of the nuances around how it all might work? Who are the different participants who might have a perspective that we should listen to? We're always learning. We like to be very curious. Having now read Knowledge is the Infinite Resource, I can tell that Mez is extremely curious you might out curious all of us. My father-in-law <laughs> recently gave me a backhanded compliment because he's been listening to the podcast. And he said that you're not afraid to look stupid by asking the basic question. I was like, oh, that's nice. But also, <laughs> but also what do I do with and that And you do it all the time. I do it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and so we're big fans of kind of start with why, what motivates us. But really, like now we've been starting with everyone's Genesis story, the beginnings of where people came from. So... Thank you guys for having me here. It's awesome to be here. It's awesome to have gotten to know you guys and, and sign on as an advisor to Nori. And I'm just super stoked. I've seen a lot of things in the blockchain and energy space. And I've just been sort of really, really dubious. But we'll get into that more, I guess, a little bit more. But I'm really impressed with Nori and, and making this possible. Where do I come from? I'm an immigrant kid, born in Egypt, age of three came to the U.S. My folks, exchange students, grew up about as American as American can be, Midwest boy, cornfields, U of I. I was one year below uh, Mark Andreessen when he was working on NCSA Mosaic, got into tech, computer science degree, worked at Microsoft, ran a startup, ran it in the ground, totally failed, learned from that, decided to write some books, fell in love with the planet, wrote a book on saving the planet. And I've always liked tech and tech in the brain, especially, and wrote this sci-fi trilogy on uh, connecting people's brains and how new ways of communicating and coordinating, like maybe blockchain, I was talking about digital telepathy myself, can change the world. So that's me in like 30 seconds. For as many accomplishments that were crammed into there, (laughs) that was the fastest that I've ever seen it done. Well, as many failures as accomplishments, I'll say I'm not Maybe I'm not afraid of looking stupid, or maybe I am, but I've looked stupid a lot, and that's part of how I've gotten where I am. That's a badge of honor in this space, though, right? The more failures, you're like, oh, this guy's learned a lot. He's been through a lot in the startup scene. As long as you learn. As long as you learn, yeah. Don't do the same thing over and over again. Well, where should we start with from there? I guess... I'd like a lesson or two from your failures. Yeah, oh why don't you gosh. teach us? What should we yeah, know? What... Yeah. Look for a real need. And when I think about my startup, we had amazing technology, software to speed up the development of nanotech, but there just wasn't really a market for what we were making. So look for an actual need. And I think Nori is addressing like something people need, people are getting more and more excited about. And I think be the grown up in the room, take the high road, 
<laughs> look for ways to add value to others and value will be added to you. Yeah, it's pretty good policy. And I guess I can respond to your comment about Nexus and, and this sort of mind meld technology where people are, are becoming a sort of macro organism or, or you're able to think in a way that is less rivalrous or more collective but it's done just through economics and the tech enables this to happen. And what's cool about it in the book that I compared it to blockchain is that people tend to be a bit euphoric about blockchain and think it's all good. And clearly there are applications that are thoroughly dystopian. And sometimes the people who oppose Nexus in your sci-fi writing, I oftentimes feel like you treated them with a great deal of respect where I understand that like the Emerging Risks Directorate, is that what mm -hmm. it's called? Yeah. So it's a United States government agency that's keeping track of this new technology because it can be used for coercion and mind control in addition to liberating people from like more foolish ways of using self-interest or short-sightedness that comes with the way the economic system is set up. You can imagine great things happening with that tech, right? And yeah. also really, really terrifying ones. Yeah. I mean, I, I think blockchain that's- blockchain too. I can think of that. That's absolutely right. I think yeah. every tech is greeted with some degree of fear by regulators or law enforcement that sees it as a way to do harm because every tech has some way to do harm. But the story of humanity, I think, there's this amazing book by Robert Wright called Non-Zero that I'm a huge fan of that influenced me. And he talks about the story of humanity being one of developing more and more ways to coordinate together that are positive sum games where both people benefit. And it's not to say that there are no negative sum actions. Of course, there are actions where someone just hurts somebody else or it's zero sum. They hurt someone else to take something. And there's actions that are negative sum where all parties get hurt. But basically over time, Humanity has found more ways to have these win-win situations. And I think cell phones are part of that. I think the printing press was part of that. I think Nexus, this idea of digital telepathy from person to person would be part of that. And I think blockchain in the best cases is part of that, can create more coordination mechanisms that give more people the ability with lower friction to interact and create win-win situations. Yeah, there's a lot there. When we were thinking about starting Nori, we sort of that, well, it's a challenge of coordinating incentives and financing. And when you get that right and things can happen out in the transparent sort of way that other people can check and say, yes, indeed, this is true, then you have an infrastructure that just kind of makes it all work in the background. But I want to go back to it. You're on the Reversing Climate Change podcast, so ostensibly you care about reversing climate change. Because he fell in love with the planet. You fell in love with That's the planet. True. So tell us about your romance, the love story. I had the most cliche environmental awakening that is possible. I was, was it Rachel Carson? What, what, no, what? <laughs> that, that's good too. I can talk about that. No, I was on a road trip in the Yucatan in Mexico with a buddy over the holidays. This is, I don't know, 11, 12 years ago. We were visiting Mayan ruins. I'm a Mayan ruin junkie. And we ended up in this beautiful town that now everybody knows about called Tulum, but it was relatively undiscovered there. And we just had a day at the beach and we were on this deserted beach and there was like a quarter mile away, there were some kite surfers and my buddy wanted to lay on the ground and I just splashed around in the ocean for hours, for the entire afternoon, just sort of jumping over the waves as they were coming in. And the water was this crystal clear, like azure blue, the sort of insane color you only see in the pictures. And up on the beach, there was some litter. And as I was there, just like, all by myself, basically, jumping around in the water. I thought, what's up with that litter? And I've always been a techno-optimist. I've been somebody who believed that technology would solve problems, but 
all of my friends, almost all are liberals. I have some conservative friends too, of course. But people have been telling me the environment's a problem. I'm like, oh, we'll solve it. But as I was there, I was like, you know, maybe it really is a problem. I should look into it. I should figure out what is the state of the planet and what's my responsibility as a human being? What's my personal responsibility? And years and years later, I just read everything I could. That led to me writing my own book, The Infinite Resource, that basically says, yeah, huge problems, but we also have huge innovative capabilities and we could solve these problems if we innovate fast enough. And that's what we should do. That was the moment right there, beach on vacation in Mexico. And uh, what is the infinite resource? This is me setting you up with a nice little (laughs) t-ball and take a swing at. The premise of the infinite resource is that most environmental thinking, for a while, it's changed a bit, but most was in one of two camps. Camp one was the problem is dire and we're fucked. Pardon my French. Can we swear on this podcast? We'll put a tag on it. We're we're, we're really beeping, beeped. So, and that beep, you know, came down to either we were screwed because it was too late or we were screwed because we had to have degrowth. We couldn't have a high GDP society if we wanted to save the environment. And that meant there's no room for the next 6 billion people that don't live Western lifestyles to rise into affluence. Other side of the story was people saying, oh, there's not really a problem, just deniers, or people saying, oh, technology will automatically solve the problem. And so I wanted to write a book in the middle that said, look, the problem is obviously real. And at the same time, the price of solar has plunged by, you know, 250x plunge in the price of solar panels. And the ozone hole would have killed us all, but we solved that. And the Cuyahoga River in... Ohio, like caught on fire in 1969, and we passed the Clean Air Act, and the economy didn't stop growing. So the infinite resource, in my mind, is innovations, it's ideas, it's new knowledge. It's the new knowledge that allows us to make solar panels that are radically cheaper, allows us to make batteries and electric cars that are radically cheaper, and use less resources to accomplish more. The right knowledge is a force multiplier. It can reduce the need for any physical resource, it can substitute for a scarce resource, it can increase the value of labor or land or capital or reduce the needs for them. It can reduce our per capita impact on the planet while increasing our per capita wealth. So that's the pitch. I'm imagining here a race and it's between one side there's human destruction that we're causing, and the other side there's human innovation. You're just hoping that innovation always stays ahead and how do we foster that and make sure that's happening? Is that a fair way to say this? I like to use the metaphor climate change, so carbon dioxide. It's a little bit different from a river catching on fire because that's very visceral. That's in yeah. my face. But carbon dioxide is this invisible gas. And the climate change that we're experiencing today is actually like something from 20 years ago because the planet hasn't warmed up to the concentrations of today. So it's like intellectually, we can see that we're getting punched in the face, but we're not going to feel that pain until 20 years from now. So maybe in your... My metaphor was way better. <laughs> no, I'm going back to your metaphor. So in this like race thing, the techno-optimist in me needs to sort of say, yes, okay, let's deal with this excess concentration. But I haven't yet truly felt the pain to make me want to change yeah. the whole system. I agree with both of you. So in terms of the race, it is a race. I use that metaphor a lot. Bill Gates has this thing, he says, that if we had 100 years to solve climate change, there's no doubt we would do it. The tech is getting better that fast. 
So it is a race. And yet, to your point, Christoph, it is a challenge that carbon dioxide is invisible, that the impact is delayed, and that it's non-local. So I'm a believer in this thing called the environmental Kuznets curve. It's somewhat controversial, but basically as people get richer, as they get you know food, shelter, heating, medical care, transport, they start to be less and less tolerant of obvious pollution. And the pollution they deal with first is the stuff they can see viscerally and affects their lives day to day. So things like litter, even though it's not a big issue, though litter probably is the main reason there's plastics in the ocean, people start to deal with that because they just get tired of it. They're like, we're rich enough, like let's spend the money on a trash system. Air pollution. You see China having their environmental movement now. And in Chinese audiences I talk to a lot fully believe in climate change because they see smog. They're like, oh, energy might produce pollution. Yeah, but air pollution is like very visceral. Water pollution. But those are all local to you. The impact you have in your community can fix it, and you see it right now. So the fact that climate change has this super global effect and that it's invisible and that it's delayed does make it more problematic. But the best analogy I have to that is ozone. Like ozone depletion was a very, very similar issue. It was about one one hundredth the cost of fixing climate change to fix ozone pollution. But nevertheless, you know, in the 80s under Reagan, we got together and said, this is no good got to do it. And we phased out CFCs that destroy ozone really, really fast. What do you think then that like passing the Clean Air Act in the 70s, which really cleaned up air pollution in the United States and helped scientists observe actual global warming happening, getting past the global dimming problem? Do you think that that's actually been, while a good thing, has actually held back Americans' understanding and appreciation for the effects of climate change? Well, that's a good question. You know, I think for the most part, Americans today don't understand how terrible air pollution and water pollution were in the 70s. And so Americans today, on the left, it's not just about climate change. Americans on the left have no historical context and think that we're polluting the environment horribly, not just in climate change, but in other ways. But they don't remember what the smog in LA was like in the 70s. They don't remember the you know rivers catching on fire in the 60s. So I don't know. If we had more smog today... I think there would be more direct calls for action in the way that there is in China. So maybe, but I'm still glad we passed the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's just a one of those weird moral hazard unintended consequences. I think you just bought yourself a blog post, Paul. No. <laughs> well, I mean, thank goodness in China. I mean, the first time I gave a talk in China, I was super nervous about like how are people going to react to like me talking about climate change and so on. And I got a standing ovation. And it was because like, the people there, everybody, from the poorest person to the richest person, they all live in this smog in Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen. And so they're like, yeah, duh. Obviously, like <laughs> industry is causing pollution and we got to fix this. What's your uh, connection? And how did you find out about the infinite resource and what grabbed you, Paul? I can't remember exactly. So what happened was in 2015, I've told this story several times on this podcast. So I, I had been working on a small business and I got interested in climate change as an opportunity thing to work on because I read this article about how climate scientists were becoming very depressed because no one was listening to them. Started thinking about it in terms of, well, there's just too much greenhouse gases. Can we just pull those back out? So I founded a meetup group called Carbon Removal Seattle. And I was shopping that out. There's this startup email listserv in Seattle. And I think I sent out an email on that list saying, hey, I'm starting this meetup group. If anyone's interested in working on this, 
come to the first meetup that I'm hosting. And I think probably from there, someone reached out to me and said, hey, you should check out this book by Ramez Nam. And it's kind of up the same alley. And so I read it. And actually, I don't, you probably don't remember this. I reached out to you on LinkedIn back then and said, hey, this is like the thing that I'm trying to do. I'm very inspired by your book. I don't remember if we corresponded at all, but. Well, thank you for doing that. Yeah. And like Amazing that now that we're actually working together. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is uh, pretty serendipitous. We're all fans here. I said on Twitter that I wanted to drop this quote, so I'm going to do so. From the book, knowledge, unlike physical resources, is non-rival. It can be used as many times and places we care to without depleting it. Its value is multiplied by the number of people who put it to work. First of all, awesome, right? Because we've got Thanks. this infinite resource and let's actually use it. And when we're talking about sharing ideas, ideas are free. That's I mean, right. Execution is the hard part. And that's yeah. kind of what Nori's <laughs> focused on. We think we have a great idea, but we need to now deliver it. But also costs need to come down. Things need to be easier once you start sort of doubling and multiplying. I mean, even to use that metaphor you have in the book where the guy who invented chess in India basically said, you know, pay me in rice and start with one and then double it each time. And it's just showing this exponential learning curve. So we're optimists. It's all possible. Knowledge needs to be shared. But let me take this a little darker. Sometimes the wrong knowledge is shared. Sometimes the knowledge that could be a solution is not getting into the right hands. Let me give an example. Yesterday, I bought spinach. It said GMO-free. I'm like, I don't care that it's GMO-free. I actually would maybe prefer if I had GMOs in my spinach because like Popeye, right? Spinach, power food. Maybe, <laughs> maybe there's some good GMOs. And yet within the environmental movement, there's this general conception that GMOs are bad. But that might not be the case because actually genetically modified crops or plants are an evolution of how we can more sustainably feed the planet. So can you unpack a little bit of ways that knowledge are shared and like what that means to share the knowledge that ultimately is going to help us live more sustainably and push back against some of the misinformation that might be spread around? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think, so people are tribal thinkers more than they are rational thinkers for the most part. And I'd say businesses have a really strong incentive to be rational thinkers. They're in sort of a Darwinian process where those businesses that adopt a product that is valued by customers or adopt a method that lowers their cost or improves their quality thrive, and those that don't go out. But when we talk outside of places where there's sheer economic incentive, people end up picking beliefs based on what the beliefs of those around them are. And there's a few core instincts in humanity that it's really easy to play to. And one of those is the naturalistic fallacy. Really, we idealize the past. We think of our agrarian past as romantic in some way, even though life expectancy was 30 years and there was no, I don't know, hemorrhoid cream or antibiotics. Or... I'm here for a good time, not for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, like, I'd like both, personally. Um, so I do think these myths tend to spread. And you see it in conspiracy theories. You see it in a variety of things. So I think on GMO food, you know, there's this combination of the naturalistic fallacy and people not wanting something that's unnatural and shitty ass, the stupidest marketing and the worst PR in the world for the companies making those products and an anti-corporatist sentiment. I understand nobody wants somebody else to have a monopoly over the food that we have. So that's really hard to figure out. Now, I'd say in the US, the regulators, bless them, are really science-based. So the FDA has just ruled again and again and again 
We have a safety process. GMO foods in the U.S. go through three different regulators, the FDA on the food safety, the USDA on the impact on land and crops, and the EPA on the environmental impact. And the National Science Foundation and their subsidiaries have put out reports and reports and saying, hey, this actually reduces the negative impact of agriculture. And the FDA has said, hey, everything we can tell and all the tests we force companies to do says this is as safe as anything else. And so they've let it go to market. The regulators in Europe and in a lot of developing world companies that have been heavily influenced by organizations like Greenpeace, who I overall love, have flinched at that and have banned these crops, even though actually their biggest positive impacts are in the developing world. So that's sad. And that's something that I wish wasn't true. Nevertheless, at a macro level, truth is winning out. At a macro level, every year, farmers around the world plant more acres of GM crops. We know that they've reduced probably 3 million cases of pesticide poisoning in India. We know that they've lifted millions of farmers out of poverty. And the growth is mostly happening in the developing world. So over time, for some reason, despite public fear, the right thing is happening, is my view. And I'll add one more thing. People are going to have to nail me. I'm going to get hit by an organic tomato on the street <laughs> as soon as I leave. We now have finally the first open source, free, totally replantable GM crops. Monsanto's first breakthrough hit was Roundup Ready Soy 1. That went off patent about three years ago. And now if you're a farmer anywhere, you can get samples of it from a couple universities. They're working on improving it and you can replant it all you want. So now we're breaking that corporate control that people were really scared about for good reason. Now it's really entering the public domain. And that's a great response. And I just, hopefully I won't get too many glares from Paul for saying what I'm about to say, but we tried to toe the line between both showing if you're part of the organic movement and part of quote unquote big ag, actually you're all on the same team. And what ultimately I think you want here is. Why would I be glaring at you for that? <laughs> I'll just wait. I'm waiting for whatever comes next. I'm feeling a little feisty is today. Shoe dropping? All right, carry on, carry on. Go, go, go. These four f challenges that farmers face that you outlined in your book. On the one hand, there's deforestation, right? On the other, you've got excess greenhouse gases getting emitted from the way we're doing agriculture. I'm trying to rely on my memory. What else have we got? Price pressure. Price pressure. Um, water, like soil loss, freshwater impacts, uh, runoffs of fertilizer creating dead zones in oceans. There's a whole, right. whole bunch. All these challenges. And Nori's coming in and we're saying, hey, we have an idea here. If you start increasing the soil health and putting more carbon dioxide in your soils, it's going to shift things ever so slightly. And to go back to it, this is an argument that we want both the organic farmers who wouldn't even consider being in the same room as some of your household names in agriculture with big ag in the same spot. Yeah. Do you consider yourself a futurist? Yeah, I, 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 get, I get called that <laughs> you get, in, in as much as I make things up about the future and write them down. All right, so, great. That's all it takes, man. That's, we had, that's literally it. <laughs> occasionally, I'm even right, but usually not. You could well, be in a, the reluctant futurist camp if you want. Well, I think what you're trying to, to say, perhaps, is... I had a question. Oh, was, there, was that... No, there was. There was. I, just, I just wanted to qualify it first. Oh, my God. Okay. It's the wave of the magic wand. How is this all going to work? <laughs> well, so I, I actually don't think that there really is a conflict fundamentally between organic ag and GM. I think, you know, GM actually reduces, you know, the poundage of pesticides and certainly the toxicity of pesticides applied per acre or per hectare. And so to me, it's fully in alignment with the goals of organic. 
That said, you know, there is a divide in the community and in, in consumer behavior, especially. But either way, whether you're an organic farmer, and organic farms are, you know, maybe one, one and a half percent of acres in the U.S. or organic crops, or you're a small family farm, or you're a big agribusiness, it's about aligning incentives. There is value that you provide to the world if you sequester carbon. You are making everyone in the world a little bit richer now and in the future. You're helping people in Bangladesh. You're helping people in Miami. And so if we can help align the incentives to give any type of farmer the reason to capture some carbon, hallelujah. The farmers make more money and the world's a better place. We hope that that endears us because... You wonder, does the right like us because we're using market-based approaches to solve a problem that the left cares about and that we're doing it in a sensible way that doesn't immediately turn them off? It's not command and control. Or do they hate it because we're doing that? Or does the left hate it because there's market-based ways of addressing climate change? Or do they like us because the ends are the same? It's like, does everyone love us or does everyone hate us is what it comes down to. We'll find out. (laughs) We will find out. So, Mez, you're probably swimming in ideas. You've come across a lot of ideas all the time. And since you've made it clear that you have this beautiful romance with wanting to reverse climate change, and you're so succinct in what you say. So we're going to try something out on you. You're going to call it Idea Popcorn. Woo! You've got... I was like, not prepared for this. It wasn't in the briefing memo. No. I, well, I refuse. It, no, I don't refuse. I'm, I'm down. Hermes has literally walked out the room. It was, it was in the fine print. We're going to talk about sustainable ideas. Okay. All right. Ready for it? First idea that is a great one that we just need more of. You've got 15 seconds. Go. Well, more solar, more wind, more batteries, more EVs, and it's happening. That was like five seconds. Wow. <laughs> I'm tight. All right. Let's pick on batteries. Like, is lithium mining, isn't that a problem? Lithium's okay. Cobalt's a real problem. But you see Tesla, for instance, like has shrunk the amount of cobalt per vehicle by a factor of three, and they're talking about almost cobalt-free. I think we'll see a divergence in battery tech. We'll have sort of lithium batteries and their descendants in mobile. And you'll see things like Flow Batteries. There's a great Oregon company called ESS that I'm an investor in that makes an all-iron flow battery, sustainable ingredients that can work you know, for 10 times the number of cycles of lithium-ion, but it's big and heavy. So I think you'll see more tech like that deployed for grid-scale storage. And why do batteries matter when it comes to climate change? Solar and wind are intermittent, and so they mostly are complementary. Sun during the day, more wind, usually at night. Sun more in the summer, winter more in the winter. But still, there's times that there's not enough sun and not enough wind. It's usually winter times we have a low wind week or month or day, and you'd love to be able to store the sun at noon for use at 6, 7, 8 p.m. when it's still peak hours. So batteries help us take it maybe from 70% we can get to just solar and wind, maybe up to 80 or 90. Any other favorite sustainable innovations? Well, I think EVs, but I think not just EVs. I think there's this transport revolution happening with a combination of electric plus autonomous plus ride-sharing services like Lyft. When you put them all together, the cost per mile of being transported in like a shared electric autonomous vehicle should drop to like 25 cents or 15 cents a mile. It should be cheaper than the bus. And then people in cities, at least, are going to you know vote with their pockets and go for that much more sustainable way to travel. Yeah, I was floored. A, a year ago, I test drove a Tesla. And I mean, they still had the sort of driverless software getting worked out, but my hands were above the steering wheel, not on it. And it was just driving itself. It was following the map. Like that technology is coming. It's pretty freaking amazing. And basically like 
Uber costs half per mile what a taxi does as part of why it's successful. If you make an autonomous Uber or Lyft or Waymo, Google's company or Tesla, it should drop that cost in half again. If you make it shared, like an Uber pool or Lyft line sort of thing, it should drop that cost in half again. If you make it electric, you can drop that cost in half again. So we're talking about one-eighth the cost of a taxi. And again, that gets you into like competing with buses or cheaper sort of price. And then I think just economics in cities, in urban areas, is going to shift us to this super sustainable, all-electric mode of transport. Yeah. And I think that the use switch is also interesting because we have cars that are sort of sitting there not getting used. But when you start sharing it and you can get greater use, it actually results in fewer vehicles. And less um, parking spots taking up real estate. Yeah. 40% of LA's footprint by land is used by cars. Oh man, I just moved out of there. And, and when we didn't have a parking spot, finding street parking was sometimes 45 minutes in the evening. Which is also carbon emissions. Like it's just oh. terrible. Oh yeah. Pretty harmful to the quality of life. I think I was much less happy then. Oh my God. I'm so <laughs> excited for half of our streets to get turned into like pedestrian thoroughfares yes. lined with trees. We were in uh, Amsterdam not long ago and were amazed at the bike culture there and just that people were doing that. I found it very pleasant. And nope. even stone there. They're managing the bikes just fine. Yeah. <laughs> Is that my outside voice? You can cut that if you want to. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, that's more fun way to bike. Just make sure you wear a helmet and you know, try to stay on the bike lane, not it's, in it's the legal there. We're not breaking the law. What should we be looking out for at, at Nori? Do you think we're in a good position to make as big of an impact reversing climate change as we might want? What should we be watching out for? Well, so yes, here, advise us on air. Well, no. well, so, so right now, if you look at sort of the four quarters of climate change emissions, electricity, one quarter, we're actually doing amazing there. We haven't done much, but the price is coming down so much. We'll decarbonize 80% of that. Transport, another quarter. More than half of that is cars. We're going to decarbonize cars, decarbonize a lot of trucks. We still don't know about ships and planes, but ships and planes overall each are like 3% of global emissions. Manufacturing and heating of buildings, another quarter, that's harder. We can do it technically, but the incentives have to be there. Just on pure economics, it's probably not going to happen, not the way that transport and electricity are. And the last quarter is agriculture. Actually, it's livestock and land use changes. And that's the hardest. Like We're making some progress on deforestation from a policy perspective, but the world's going to keep eating more meat. So even with all the tech happening in solar, wind, electric cars, we really don't know how we're going to decarbonize you know, at least a quarter and maybe more of the world's carbon emissions. So people are going to have to do something. And so some sequestration from air, I think, is just simply necessary. The flip side to that, which I think is really interesting, is you guys are building a voluntary decarbonization market or voluntary sequestration market. And I used to think that, hey, it was going to only happen through policy. But we talk about this non-zero world and greater coordination. Consumers are doing better at coordinating their behavior, and consumers have shown preference for clean. And so you saw Lyft, like a month ago, announcing that they're going to offset 100% of the emissions from rides that passengers take. Not the emissions for making the car, not the emissions for when the driver is driving around with nobody in it, but 100% of the emissions from when people are in the car. And I tell friends that, and friends are like, oh, that's just one more reason to switch from Uber to Lyft. So I see that. I see consumers and employees and corporate boards having a preference for clean. And so I think the time is ripe for making it trivially easy, an API call to offset your carbon. I think that makes a heck of a lot of sense today, and I think you're just on the right path. <laughs> That's pretty good. I don't know. Where do, you, where do you go from there? 
Cool. <laughs> Satisfied? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. well, well it, you know, okay, so you talked about those four different quarters of sources of emissions. And one of the cool things that we don't even really talk about very much, we have talked about on here that we're focusing on different methodologies, methods of removing carbon dioxide and how we measure and verify that. And the first one that we're working on is soil sequestration. And so there's this tangible benefit of farmers getting paid for sequestering carbon dioxide in their soil. But what we're not even really talking about is all the saved avoided emissions because they're using less fertilizer, so they don't have to be as produced as much. And not only by not tilling are they end up pulling CO2 down, but they're not stirring up what's already there. So we're getting rid of some of that land use change emissions and then putting more down in the ground. So it's an extra benefit. I think that's amazing. Going from something that is a, one of the carbon sources that is the hardest to deal with right now to making it a carbon sink is just friggin' amazing. And as we talk about, you know, other ways, I don't know how much you want me to say, but yeah, yeah. if we get into afforestation mm -hmm. down the road, these are also so cheap in terms of ways for carbon removal. When we talk about, you know, the new David Keith, God bless him, scientist with, you know, technology to suck carbon out of the air. I'm a huge supporter. I love it. Let's keep doing it. But we're talking about more than $100 a ton to sequester carbon via industrial processes like that. When you're talking about a handful of dollars a ton to sequester carbon through better uh, soil management, that's such a bargain. And so I think focusing on things like that is just incredibly smart. Mm -hmm. It's an easy sale, too. To Many of these people are we're considering going to regenerative practices. And then we're like, hey, we're going to pay you for doing this thing that you were considering. Or make it easier for them to get paid. Or make it we're easier. We're not doing the one span. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very easy sale. And direct air capture, too, in my understanding, most of it is carbon capture in use right now. They are not storing it. It's not cost competitive for that yet. They're mostly using it for beverage carbonation or other purposes. Right, Christoph? Right. Well, you mentioned David Keith, his company up in Squamish, Canada. British Columbia, that's carbon engineering. They are certainly eyeing the California low carbon fuel standards opportunity because what they're doing initially will be making fuels with CO2 from air. So it's not even that it's sequestration, but it's a potential replacement fuel for those internal combustion engines, which just don't go away overnight. We don't like to pick favorites. For us, a carbon yeah. removal certificate, a ton is a ton is a ton. And there are so many co-benefits. Like when you plant a tree, did you know that trees make you happier? Like, Aw, they, they, mine they, do. Yeah. I've been watering my plants this summer. It's probably bad behavior, but I love I love plants. It's like, <laughs> oh, great. And animals come back. I hear more birds. Obviously, you need to be mindful yeah. about. It's all hands on deck. I'm down for any single way that we can figure out to reduce carbon. But I think going after this underappreciated and underutilized mechanisms that are really cheap, that are probably even cheaper than we're figuring out because of what you were saying, Paul, and that generate other positive like co-benefits for the environment is just an amazing place to start. How much time do you think we have or what's the infinite resource approach to something like some of the estimates we've heard about coral reefs dying off in the next couple of years or decade? Brian von Herzen was here talking about cooling specifically cooling key coral reefs through deeper water being pumped yeah. into them. Is there some sort of infinite resource way to deal with these problems? Well, so I'm heading to XPRIZE on Friday to take part in a hackathon they have. And I'm really doing the sort of off-grid solar one. I'm going to hear the ideas they have for a saving coral reefs XPRIZE. And I'm a scuba diver. I'm passionate about that. This might be hard to hear, but I'm more of an optimist on human ability to adapt than most people. So right now, we're not on a path for 2 degrees C, but frankly, I think at 2.5 degrees C or 3 degrees C, it gets worse. It's non-linearly worse, but human civilization will survive. 
I think we will be called upon this century to be shepherds of the earth and to actively manage coral reefs and forests and rethink what we think of as an invasive species and you know, move by our human volition species that thrive in one temperature zone to out of the zone where they're dying and into new zones that have opened up where they thrive. So I think we can do more of that than we believe. And two degrees C is not, everything is hunky-dory at 1.9 and at 2.1 we all die. It's this grade and I think at three degrees C there's a lot of pain in the developing world, a lot of pain in least developed countries that are in the equatorial band, and there's scars in the ecosystem that last for millennia, or millions of years really, but we survive, probably. What worries me the most, what keeps me up the most, is these tail risks of runaway feedback loops. Is the Arctic getting darker as ice melts and absorbing more sunlight? If the Arctic was ice-free in June, which we're nowhere near, but if it was, we're closer to it in September, but we're not close to that in June, that would be as much additional heating of the planet as all carbon emissions to date. Uh, forests, yeah. I mean, that's like a century away on current path. Forests burning down, forests in the tropics that are carbon sinks becoming carbon sources, the Arctic tundra, greening, you know, going from white to green and brown, buried methane being released in those areas. So honestly, I look at each of those and I can walk you through each of those and why it's probably not going to happen. You know, I can tell you like, oh, you know, the Arctic methane clathrates at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean survived an ice-free period that was at least hundreds of years long at the start of the Holocene 12, 14,000 years ago. There's good reason to believe they'll survive a couple centuries now till we get this stuff under control. Yeah, good. Let's say each of those is a 1% risk. It's not pretty. So that's what actually worries me. And while I think we can survive 2.5 degrees, there's a chance, there's a paper out yesterday, there's a chance that actually hitting 2.5 degrees might rapidly turn into 5 degrees. Mm -hmm. And that's not pretty at all. So the faster we go, the better. And, you know, no matter any intervention you look at, and certainly what Nori's talking about, at a few dollars a ton, the benefits to humanity are, you know, 10x or 20x what the cost is. Let's just do it. The motto for us should just be Nori, you don't want to turn into Venus. <laughs> I prefer like Nori, just do it. Like little, like you steal from Nike. Hopefully they won't mind. That's great. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, I've been reading a novel by Kim Stanley Robinson lately. God, York, I love Stan. New York 2140. Have you read that one? I haven't, but you know, I've read his depictions of New York in uh, 2312 and so on. Oh, okay. I haven't read that one yet, but it takes place in 2140. Large scale climate change has occurred. There have been two big, rapid ice melts that have raised water levels around 50 feet or so. And he's telling the story of how people are surviving and, and adapting and so on. And one of the scenarios in there is this woman who helps transport polar bears from the Arctic down to the Antarctic, helping them survive as a species. So it sounded very similar to what yeah. you were just describing. Yeah. And just to be totally clear, like Stan there is talking about tail risks, like the central estimates IPCC is sort of conservative, but if you raise what they've estimated to like say to the other papers, we're talking about, you know, two to three meters, six to 10 feet in 2140 of a sea level rise. So it's not quite like that. But for Bangkok, half of Bangkok is less than one meter up. For Miami, that's, you know, the first road in Miami gone. So that's a serious amount. But I do love Stan's spirit. I don't know if he does this in 2140. In 2312, he has this sort of throwaway line of how New York City has been flooded, and like the bottom first story is basically gone, and people get around 
by votes mm -hmm. like they do in Venice, and that the New Yorkers have thought about making a big seawall and draining all the water out, but they kind of like it better this way anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's the <laughs> so same in this one. I love that. That a sense of human adaptation, I think, is really good. Yeah. I think it's inevitable, but we're optimists. You're an optimist. It's all go be techno-optimistic and try to at least build a market mechanism that makes it so we can envision a world with no degree C warming and live happily ever after. Sounds yeah, we can, good to me. We're kind of headed towards ending it on, on a dead end <laughs> note there. So thanks, Christoph, for bringing it back. <laughs> if you like the podcast, please share us. Give us a nice rating in the app that you use. Share this on social media if you would. Mez, thanks so much for being on. Please read his books, Infinite Resource and the Nexus Trilogy. Is that the correct name for it? Yeah, that's right. Nexus Trilogy. Really good stuff. Thanks for being here. You guys, it is such an honor and so much fun. And I can't wait to launch Nori and get it out there in the world and like speed up our pace of decarbonization. Thank you. We're so excited to have you uh, with us as well.